0: Um, Very good. Genesis 18, if you have your Bibles this morning, how do you respond to God? That's the question. How do you respond to God? This is a question we're going to ask ourselves as we walk through the text today. Recall last time we were in Genesis 17, which was actually quite some time ago at this point, we considered a new name for God. God presented himself to Abraham as the Almighty God, el And we considered this through the lens of the impossible promise that God had made to Abraham on that day, that within a year, his wife, Sarah, would have a child, that that child's name would be named Isaac, that he would be the first of his household to be circumcised on the eighth day, that he would become an heir to all of the promises of God to Abraham, he would become a nation, and that through him would come great kings. And Abraham needed to know this. On that day, he needed to know that God was the almighty God because it had been 24 years since that promise had been made, 24 years since God said he would have a child. uh, That's a long time to wait. And what might have been perfectly humanly possible 24 years ago when God said he would have a child and he says, okay, then Sarah's going to have a child at this point seems outside of the biological possibility, outside of possibility. It would now require absolute divine intervention. It would now require God to be the almighty God. And Abraham at that time, uh, in Genesis 17, appealed to God on Ishmael's behalf. God, wouldn't it just be easier that Ishmael could be the one who you would choose? Doesn't that just make sense? I've already got a son. Why, why can't Ishmael stand before you? But God didn't come to Abraham with the name biologically possible God. God came to Abraham not with the name the human reasoning God. God came to Abraham with the name the Almighty God. And in many ways, this message is therefore an extension of the applications and the thoughts that we had back. Genesis 17. So we pick up in verse 1 through 5 of Genesis 18, the Bible says this And the Lord appeared unto him, that would be Abraham, in the plains of Mamre. And he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water I pray thee, be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort ye your hearts. After that, ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. So we enter into a nondescript future moment after God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17. Uh, it couldn't have been too long after the previous interaction. Abraham is 99 years old when he is circumcised in Genesis 17. And Genesis chapter 21, verse 5, tells us that Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born unto him. And of course, uh, you need nine months gestation between the promise uh, of, of God and the birth. So we're at best uh, some measure of months removed. Uh, if Abraham was 99, then we have effectively something like um, 23 months technically to work with between if he had just turned 99 and just before he turned 101, um, but somewhere within those 24 months of 99 and 100, uh, these things are happening. So they're fairly quick succession here as it relates to these events. And the Bible says that Abraham is now in the plains of Mamre. That was one of his friends. We've already talked about him a little bit. And um, he's in the plains of that area that was um, the, this man's region of uh, Mamre one of the more common places that Abraham found himself over the years. And as he sat in his tent door at the heat of the day, and it's kind of hard for us when it's eight below zero uh, to be thinking about Abraham in the heat of the day, but he's there in the heat of the day. We're here not in the heat of the season, at least. And the Lord, the Bible says, appears unto him. Now, we talked some weeks ago about the idea of the angel of the Lord, the characteristics of the angel of the Lord's appearances. And and here we don't even see the angel of the Lord so named, but rather the Bible explicitly says that the Lord appeared unto Abraham. But then as Abraham is talking, he is talking to three men. And so as we put two and two together and we think through what we studied a few weeks ago as it relates to the character of the angel of the Lord, uh, it would give us a measure of confidence to believe that one of these men, uh, and particularly the, the, the man who's leading these three, uh, eventually as they leave, we'll talk about it a little bit more next week, uh, the, the three men are going to leave. Abraham will talk with the Lord a little bit more. And then the Lord will depart, presumably to heaven. And then the other two men will actually end up in Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what we're going to talk about in Genesis 19. So we have these three men and one of them, the leader of, that, uh, of this, this band of men, the, the, the spokesperson, we would believe to be the angel of the Lord, the, in, indeed the Lord himself. Now, perhaps more toward the end of the chapter we'll consider next time. We'll we'll see a little bit more of that. But we continue then here. Um, These three men are standing by Abraham on this day, and Abraham runs out to meet them, bowing himself down to them. And he asks these men to stay, showing them all manner of hospitality, washing their feet, inviting them to rest under the shade of the tree, while he prepares for them food. So he's asking for them to dwell with him instead of just passing through to their next destination, and the men grant Abraham this petition, and they, they remain. So we read in verses 6 through 8. And Abraham hastened to the tent unto Sarah, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd, and fetched a calf tender and good, and gave it unto, the young, unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf, which... He had dressed and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. So Abraham asked Sarah to make three cakes. In this, it's obvious that that Abraham is simply uh, feeding them, right? He's not going to necessarily eat himself. He made three cakes, one for each of them, and then they they, um, uh, made some meat, and then butter and milk, and then this calf that was dressed, and he sets it before them. And he watches them, he stands by them, effectively standing there, uh, waiting on them if they needed anything else while they ate. Naturally, you can imagine the preparation, the cooking and such. Um, this was not necessarily just a 15-minute you know, transaction. He didn't just throw something in the microwave for them. Uh, this was going to be a, a time that they were resting. Verses 9 and 10. And they said unto him, Where is Sarah, thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah, thy wife, shall have a son. And Sarah heard it in the tent door which was behind him. So the Lord asks Abraham where his wife is. Abraham says, well, she's, she's, she's in the tent. And the Lord says, he gives this promise, I will return according to the time of life and your wife shall have a son. Well, um, this, is, um, this news of a son is not news to Abraham, right? Genesis 17, however many months ago it was, God said this. God said Sarah would have a son. Uh, Abraham asked, are you sure you don't mean just Ishmael here? He says, no, no, no. Sarah's going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. So so there has been clarity already in Abraham on this. He'd already had that conversation with the Lord. Now, what's new here to Abraham is the timing. God had not yet told Abraham when. The son is no longer a distant promise, no longer an ethereal promise. The son is coming and coming soon. And as the Lord said this thing, Sarah, who was in that tent, heard it. And we read of her response in verses 11 and 12. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well-stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Now, this response is very interesting because it seems to be that this is the first time that Sarah has heard anything of this promise. Maybe I'm making an assumption there. I guess I suppose I am making an assumption there. But the text seems to imply that this is the first time Sarah has heard this promise. And from a purely practical perspective, what this likely means is that Abraham had, given, uh, had, had been given that promise, had had that previous interaction in Genesis 17 with the Lord. And even though he trusted God it seems as though he didn't tell his wife what God had told him. Whether that's a, well, just in case, I don't want to really get Sarah's hopes up again, so I'm just not going to tell her at this time. Uh, I don't really have a timetable yet on this thing, so maybe I'll just wait until there is a timetable to tell her. Uh, She's been settled in the biological reality that she can't have a child now for something like a decade. It It had ceased to be with her according to the manner of women. In other words, she was no longer biologically capable of having children, Let's just not rock that boat, maybe Abraham's thinking. Let's not put her back into emotional turmoil after, after all that she went through prior to Hagar and then with Hagar. If Hagar was around that time where she, she, she stopped being able to have children biologically, so she realized at that point it's time to give up, here's Hagar, take Hagar and, and have a child with, with her because I biologically can't anymore anymore. She maybe held out that hope and held out that expectation until that time where biological reality set in, but now she's been perhaps 10 years then, if Ishmael uh, um, is, is born about that time, 10, 12 years since that point, let's just not rock that boat. And so it seems that this is actually the first time that Sarah has heard this promise from God. And I don't exactly know how that went down, when Abraham received the promise in chapter 17, because remember when he received that promise, he also got a name change. And that name change was indicative of the fact that God was going to uh, do something through him, right? And he was using that name change as a means by which to set that association. And we also know that on that day, Sarah got a name change. So you kind of wonder, uh, how did that go down? Abraham goes and says, you know, honey, God has changed our names. I'm Abraham now, not Abram. And, and, and you're not Sarah, I, you're, you're Sarah, because nations will come from us. And then Sarah says something to the effect of, well, don't you mean a nation will come from you? I have, yeah, you know, not my child. Uh, why, why change my name? You know, no reason, I don't know. God's being thorough. <laughs> don't know how that conversation went down, but, but for some reason he didn't tell Sarah, right? So this is the first time we might presume that God, or that Sarah has heard this promise. And of course it's an impossible promise because Sarah is biologically incapable of having children. So the Bible says she laughs within herself, saying, now that we're old, we're going to have kids. Here we had all those years where we could have had kids, where it was biologically entirely possible. And now that we're old, we're going to have kids. Now that we can't do it anymore, we're going to have kids. Verses 13 through 15. And the Lord said unto Abraham, wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I of surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee, according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Then Sarah denied, saying, I laughed not, for she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. Now immediately the Lord questions Abraham, asking why it was that Sarah laughed. Now now this is a bit strange here. Like with Abraham, who in Genesis 17 laughed in his heart, so too with Sarah, she did not laugh audibly. She laughed within herself. We recall in Genesis 17, God says, you'll have a child with Sarah and he falls upon his face and he laughs within his heart. And here Sarah laughs within her heart as well. Why then would God confront Abraham about this thing? Abraham did not hear her laugh. Sarah laughed within her heart. He didn't even hear his, uh, uh, you know, he, he couldn't have even heard his wife laugh. For all we know, we can't even be sure Abraham knew that Sarah had heard the conversation Through the tent, although he might have presumed she did. So then why confront Abraham? Could it be because Abraham was supposed to have told his wife about this promise? Could it be that the idea of why did she laugh was not asking why it is she was motivated, you know, what what not 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 the, the, the crux of the issue is not that she laughed, the crux of the issue is why is she surprised that I just said this? Abraham, did you forget to tell your wife something? Why is she surprised? Remember back in Genesis 17, I I told you this and I changed her name and, and, and I changed her name and didn't you tell your wife? Why is it that Sarah is surprised to hear these words when Abraham had known this promise for at least some measure of time? Or maybe it's just because Abraham was a man representing his wife and such. Either way, God asks, why did Sarah laugh? And then follows it up with a statement of clarity. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? So God does drive down to not just the fact that she laughed, but the the true reason why she laughed, which is this is not possible. And God, in responding to that, says, what do you mean it's not possible? Responding to the, the laugh of her heart, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the one who is the Almighty God? And of course, to this, Sarah denies. She says, I laughed not. Now, physically, that's true. She did not laugh out loud, but this is not true in that she did, in fact, laugh in her heart. And this is typical, in typical human fashion. She was afraid, and so she lied. She hid herself. Going all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, they sinned. Then they hear Jesus walking in the cool of the day, the Lord walking in the cool of the day, uh, and they hide because they were afraid, right? They, 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 they hid from the truth. They hid from the light. They hid from the Lord. The Lord does not allow her to get away with this, however. If there's nothing too hard for the Lord so that he can give her a child in her elderly years, certainly he can discern the intent of her heart. And so he says, no, you, you did laugh. He corrects her on this narrative. And that's verse 15. And this is actually where we're going to stop for today, we're we're jumping in kind of, uh, we're stopping kind of in the middle of uh, of of something, but we're really not. This is where it ends, and next thing that happens is the men arise to leave, and that's where we'll talk next week about some different characteristics of God. But as we we finish our narrative today, thinking through what happened here, I'd like to ask a question. It's the question we started with. It's a question that we're going to come back to, Let's ask it again. As we think through how Abraham responded to God in Genesis 17, as we think about how Sarah responded to God in Genesis 18, the question that I have for you today is, how do you respond to God? So there are any number of circumstances that come up in your lives? It was a wonderful discussion we had in Sunday school this morning, and one of the things that was brought up is the idea of the Word of God being a timeless book, right? That though we find times and seasons that, that have changed dramatically, though we live a very different time and place than people have in other times. Yet, throughout the the differences of times and of seasons, technologies, the circumstances, um, yet, as we open up the Word of God, the Spirit of God and the conscience that He has given to us allows us to navigate all of the things of this life, all of the things of this time, all of the time of this season of history through the indelible principles of the Word of God. The reality that humanity, humans are still humans, God is still God, things still operate the way God has ordained them to be, and there's nothing that man can do, there's nothing that man can impose upon this world that can change the design of God in it, so it stands for us to know the Word of God and then the Spirit of God to guide and to lead us through the circumstances of our day into truth. And the question as we we do this then is not whether or not God leads, not whether or not God is capable, but how is it that you respond in the day that you read and the Spirit of God impresses upon you realities? How are you going to respond in that day? How do you respond in that day? Times of vulnerability, times of trial, times of confusion, times of frustration, times where you don't know what's happening. Times where you do know what's happening, but you don't like it. And then you read the word of God and God has something to say about it. How are you going to respond? On our Sunday evenings, we've been talking about this idea, right? Last two messages in Mark have been messages on the parable of the soils, the seeds and the sower. And the question is, will you hear? How do you hear? So let's ask a few questions in in regard to this today. Question number one, as we walk through Genesis 18, how do you respond to God's presence? Abraham was sitting at the door of his tent when he saw three men, one of whom was the Lord. In chapter 17, we do not know the circumstances of God's interaction with Abraham other than at the moment of interaction. The Bible says Abraham fell upon his face. In chapter 18, Abraham approaches these men. He bows himself toward the ground. So a very similar response in that sense And then he makes every provision for the men to be well-received and comfortable for the time that they are in his presence. Abraham waits upon the Lord for the extent of the time that the Lord is with him. Can you say that about your own heart, Christian? That as you spend time in the Word, as you spend time in prayer, when the Spirit of God is ministering to your heart, either through his Word, either in that time of prayer, through uh, the ministry of of a brother or a sister in Christ, whatever it might be, Are you responsive to his presence with hospitality in your heart? Would that, metaphorically speaking, we would do what Abraham did on this day? In that Mark series, that parable of the soils, the objective of the parable is to cause God's people to consider the condition of their hearts for the moment when the truths of God's word that are cast from the hand of God land in the soil of our hearts, And for all of the incredulity which we observe in both Abraham and Sarah in these chapters, what we cannot say is that Abraham was an unwilling man to accommodate the word of the Lord in his heart and in his mind. And for all of the different flaws that we have, for all of the difficulties that we have, For all of the, the things that we face in our lives whereby you might be a naturally more fearful person, a more timid person, uh, you, you might, uh, be more of an anxious person. And for all of those things, those things, you, you, you will likely fight those things throughout the course of the rest of your life. You might be a very independent person and, and, and you like to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and solve things for yourself. And for the rest of your lives, whatever characteristics you have, um, that, that, that would, that would kind of grate against a simple reliance upon the Lord. For whatever characteristics you're going to fight through, at the end of the day, the question is, are you willing to set yourself aside and make room for the Lord, make room for His Word? The beginning of obeying the Word of God, Christian, is listening to the Word of God. In the beginning of the Word of God, bearing its fruit in your life Is you being willing to receive it with humility and and gladness with you being hospitable to the word of the Lord in your hearts? Does the word of the Lord have that place in your heart? You're a flawed man, you're a flawed woman, welcome to the club, we all are. But when the Lord appears, metaphorically speaking, does he have a place by your tent? And perhaps as you sit among God's people today, you have not had a soft heart to the word of God, to his instructions, to his leading. Perhaps instead you have been hard-hearted, determined unto your way, determined unto your desires. How do you respond to God's presence, Christian? Now, again, God is not standing among us as he did in Abraham's day. We, We speak metaphorically as we make this illustration. And yet Peter tells us this, In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So Peter here is talking about the day that he experienced what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes upon the Mount. Peter, James, and John are with him. uh, They kind of fall asleep. Jesus is transfigured. They they wake up. They see what's going on. They see him, and they they see Moses and Elijah with him, and they're speaking, and there is all of this glory, and it's amazing, and they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. You can't forget an experience like this. Now, they were told not to tell about that experience until after Jesus rose from the dead. So he's telling about it now. But you can't forget something like that. And, and by the way, we'd like to say, if we saw something like that, if you saw that, I remember I was talking to a man several years ago. He's uh, uh, someone who, who is, is not with us uh, here, but I was talking to him and he was really struggling. He was struggling with his faith and uh, he was not struggling as much as he thought he was, uh, but he was struggling. And I remember I was sitting in his living room with him and he said, if only God would just kind of pierce those clouds right now and come down, then I'd have no more questions. Then it would make all make sense. And that's what happened in a sense on that day with Peter, right? God didn't come down. Jesus was transfigured before him. But notice then what Peter says in verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well. Peter describes in these verses that mount of transfiguration, an eyewitness to Christ's majesty, the audible witness to such a voice from the excellent glory, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He heard it himself, and he could stand before the people that he was writing to in that day and say, I am an eyewitness to Jesus's glory. And yet he tells his readers in verse 19, that they have a more sure word of prophecy in the Holy Scriptures than anything that could possibly come from his mouth as an eyewitness. That the word of God as illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God into our hearts as a light shining into the darkness is more sure, more reliable, and more clear than even his eyewitness account of that day of transfiguration. You can be more confident, Christian, in the word of God that has been given to you inspired and preserved from generation to generation than Peter could be of his eyewitness account on that day. So that while you don't have the Lord standing before you and you can make for him a cake and slay the fatted calf and lay before him butter and milk, yet you have his word all the more sure, all the more clear, a more sure word of prophecy. And so the question asked then is this. How do you respond to it? To God's teaching? To God's presence through his illuminating Holy Spirit in your life? Is your heart in a place of hospitality to God's truth? Or is it your heart in a place of hostility to God's truth? How do you respond to God's presence, Christian? Second question. How do you respond to God's timing? Last time we were together in Genesis 17, not last time we were together, um, we were careful to note that it had been 24 years between when God had first made his promises to Abraham and now when those promises were finally coming into some measure of fruition to where Abraham could really see a path forward. Abraham's response, to what he considered a delay, but which we know was simply God's perfect plan and timing. Was at times confusion. Abraham was confused when the famine perhaps came into the land. So he ends up in Egypt. Then he finds his way back. Abraham doesn't understand. He doesn't have a child. And he says, is this Eleazar of Damascus going to be my heir? And God says, no, an heir is going to come from your own bowels. And then Abraham doesn't understand when God says that uh, it's going to come from him, but he, he, Sarah's not having a kid. And perhaps, presumably, we might assume that at the point that biologically she's no longer able to have children, he's very confused now and she's confused and, and they, they don't understand. And then they have Ishmael. And the confusions that came along the way as he, as he waited, the, the times of discouragement, the times of doubt, and at times confidence as well. And now here we are again. And as I said, we do not know how long it's been between Genesis 17 and Genesis 18, maybe days, maybe months, long enough for Abraham to go about circumcising all the men of his household, including himself at 99 years old, and then for them all to heal from it. But not too long since Isaac would be born before Abraham's 101st birthday. And so there are these times of confusion. There are these times where we don't know what's happening. There are these times where we can't see through the fog that is in front of us. We know what God has told us, and maybe we've made that place for God in our hearts, and we've listened to what God has to say, and we've understood it, and that has forged in our minds a thoughtfulness as it relates to a path that is before us, or at least a a, a destination that is before us, but we can't see the path. And we don't understand, and that can lead to confusion. And in that confusion, we can make rash choices, as Abraham and Sarah did in their day. But we read in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9 For my thoughts are your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Christian, how do you respond to God's timing? There are two general possible answers, right? Patience or impatience. Even if you know that God will work, even if you have all confidence that God will work, even if you believe the Lord, as Abraham did throughout those 24 years, there still is the question of when. Patience or impatience. Do you see God's timing as an integral part of God's will for a situation? Do you see that God's will is not just wrapped up in what he's going to do or what he wants to do, but can you see that God's will is also wrapped up in when he wants to do it? And that your timing is not his timing? And that your understanding is not his understanding? And that your plan and the, 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 the check marks along your plan may not be his plan? Or the check marks along his plan? That in any given situation, it's not just about what God wants to do, but when God wants it to happen. And that it is just as important to be aligned with his will as it relates to his timing as it is as it relates to what he wants to do. Are you willing to wait, Christian? Even when waiting is difficult? Are you willing to submit your times and your seasons to God's will and God's plan? And look, we all know that that isn't easy. That's why we give Abraham and Sarah a break when we think through those human eyes, right? Right? 24 years. It's a long time to wait. It wasn't easy for Abraham. We know that. It wasn't easy for Sarah. We know that. It isn't easy for you. We know that. It isn't easy for me. We know that. Not only are we walking through life discerning the Lord's will, but we also acknowledge that there are times where in full confidence, we believe that God has something for us, but he's asking us to wait for it. That can be sometimes the hardest time of all. Sometimes it's easier to have no idea what God is doing than to know what God's doing but have no idea when He's going to do it. That can be the hardest time of all. Waiting upon God. Resting in Him while we await the outworking of His will. So we read in Psalm 37, verses 3 through 8. Trust in the Lord and do good. So shalt thou dwell in the land and verily thou shalt be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass and he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass, cease from anger and forsake wrath, Fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Don't become pragmatic in your waiting, Christian. Don't say, well, because God should be doing something, but it isn't happening now, then I guess I have to take it into my own hands. No, if you know what the Lord is going to do, then it is your privilege to wait on it. The Psalm contemplates something different than what we're necessarily thinking about with Abraham this morning. This psalm contemplates a man's response to an evil man, not necessarily the response to the promises of God. So we're a little bit outside of direct context here, except that the reason why it must be contemplated in response to the evil man is because God has unfailingly promised to judge the evil man, and so you're still waiting on God's promises. It's just God's promises of judgment, right? So what this man is actually contemplating is not necessarily the evil man, but he's contemplating the response of a man as he waits for God to bring judgment against evil. And the answer is this. While you're waiting, trust in the Lord and do good. While you're waiting, don't get caught up in the evil. Don't get caught up in the mess. Don't get caught up in pragmatism. Don't get caught up in impatience. While you're waiting, Stay faithful and obedient to what you do know of God's will and of God's promises. And as you wait on God for those things that rest outside of your knowledge and your control, stay faithful to the things you do know. Stay faithful to the things you do control. Be busy doing what you know to do while you're waiting on God to do the rest. Rest in the Lord, Christian. Wait patiently on Him, Christian. Don't fret, cease from anger, forsake wrath, don't jump ahead of God in, in, in vindictiveness or in judgment. Trust not only in God's promise, but trust in God's timing. You'll often not be graced by God to know God's timetable in your life, Christian. And we can say, why would God do that? Why does God do that? Why doesn't God just tell us? Well, But we know why. Because God delights in one thing and one thing alone. There's one thing that pleases God truly, faith. So that Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. So what is God going to do? What should we expect God to do? We should expect him to seek our faith. And a part of that will be waiting. So you will often not be graced by to know His timetable, but can you trust the Lord and faithfully wait, Christian? Can you trust the Lord and be faithful while you wait, Christian? How do you respond to God's timing? First question, how do you respond to God's presence? Have you made that place for Him in your heart? When the Word of the Lord speaks, are you ready to receive? Second, are you waiting on God's timing? When you recognize what the Word of the Lord has to say, are you just... insistent that it happen right then or are you willing to wait not just on what God has but on when he has it? Third, how do you respond to God's capabilities? God made a dramatic promise to Abraham and then subsequently to Sarah in Genesis 17 and 18 that though both Abraham and Sarah were old, that Sarah was presumably biologically, what well, we know at this point, biologically incapable of having children, that God was going to give them together a child. Genesis 17, the Bible says Abraham laughed in his heart. Genesis 18, the Bible says Sarah laughed in her heart. And God's response to this was simply, is anything too hard for the Lord? Christian, maybe as I've been saying all of these things this morning, you're saying, well, pastor, it's all well and good, but you don't understand my circumstances. You don't know just how bad it is. You don't know just how hard it is. You don't know just what I've experienced. You don't know just what sorrow I've faced. You don't know just what difficulties I've faced. You don't know just how far gone things are. You don't know how far down the rabbit hole I have gone. You don't know how far into the darkness I am. You don't understand, and maybe I don't. But I do know the God that I serve. I do know the God of the Bible. And I do know that there is nothing too hard for him. So I know the answer to the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? And you know the answer to the question, is there anything too hard for the Lord? If I asked any one of you, is anything too hard for the Lord? And if you ask me the same question, I know with 100% certainty what every single one of your answers would be. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? And every single one of you would say No. But what I cannot answer for you and you cannot answer for me is what any of us will do with that information. You and I know there's nothing too hard for the Lord. But the real question is, do you believe it? Does it impact, influence, fundamentally affect the manner in which you live your life, the way that you direct your thinking and your actions on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, promise-by-promise, instruction-by-instruction basis? Does what you know about God's absolute capabilities translate into how you live your days out? And to this we'll say, yes, pastor, of course, God can do things, but that doesn't mean he will do things. And that's true. I am happy to concede the point that just because God can do something doesn't mean he will. But God forbid that I would ever hide behind God's will, what, what God will do as a shield against faithlessness regarding what God can do. Did I invert those? Hide behind what God can do as a shield against what God, faithlessness against what God will do. You know what I'm saying. You and I are welcome to concede the point that God does not unfailingly do great, one, great and wonderful things simply because He can. But how often does God fail to do great and wonderful things in my life simply because I don't have the faith to believe that he will? That's what I was getting at. Yes, allow your knowledge of God to temper any temptation within you to make demands of God. Well, God, because you can do this, I'm demanding it. Yeah, don't do that. But don't allow your fears and concerns to stunt your willingness to ask and expect great things from a God who asked Abraham and Sarah in their day of doubt, is there anything too hard for the Lord? One more question this morning. First question, how do you respond to God's presence? Have you made that place for him? Second, how do you respond to God's timing? Are you willing to wait on him? Third, how do you respond to God's capabilities? Do you actually believe that there's anything too hard for the Lord? Finally, how do you respond to God's confrontations? I try very hard in the manner of my preaching to avoid situations where I am laying upon a listener any sort of personal guilt or shame or even in that sense conviction. It's not my job to do that. It's not my job to to make you feel bad. It's not my job to make you feel good. It's my job to tell you what the Bible says. It's the spirit of God's job to do things in you. And what I hope to do is I hope to put into you that, the, the, the resources necessary for the Spirit of God to do His work. That's my desire. It's the Holy Spirit's job to tell you what to do with what you hear. And to whatever degree I fail to get out of the way, I do in fact consider myself to have failed. To whatever degree, anything that you feel on a Sunday morning of conviction or of guilt or of or frustration or even of, 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 of exhortation or, or whatever it is, if, if it's, to whatever degree that, that's centered in me, I feel like I have failed. I want the Holy Spirit of God to do that work. But I do rejoice when God's people tell me that the Spirit of God has confronted them with conviction, with hope, with edification, with encouragement, with exhortation. Throughout our time together, when God does that, that's a good thing. That means that God is working. When you walk away having received something, that's a good thing because that means God is doing something. And when you perceive one of those times, particularly when it's confrontational, When the Lord places his thumb on something in your life and says, that needs to be dealt with. And I've had people walk away and get very angry at me and say, Pastor, why are you guilting me and all of those things? And and yet when it's from the Lord, when you perceive one of those times, not when Pastor Wickler's confronting you, I've had to do that with people, but that's not what I do from the pulpit. But when the Spirit of God is confronting you, the question is this How do you respond? On the day that Abraham was talking with the Lord, the Lord asked him why Sarah laughed. Abraham presumably doesn't even know what's going on, but Sarah certainly does, and her immediate response is to deny it. I didn't laugh, this is natural. When put in a compromising situation, the easiest way out is to deny action or culpability. The easiest thing to do when you step out of any Sunday morning or Sunday evening or Tuesday night and the Spirit of God has taken the Word of God and done something in your heart with it, the easiest thing to do is explain it away. The easiest thing to do is to hide from it. The easiest thing to do is to say, nope, nope, that's just, that was just Pastor Wickler. That's just him guilting me. Or that's, that, 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 that's, that's everybody else, sure, sure, I may do that, but look at, look at my neighbor, look at my friend, look at my, look at my family member, look, look how much worse they are. I mean, sure, maybe I struggle a little bit, but look at them. That's the easiest thing to do. And it's the most natural thing to do. But you and I know full well that even if we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're not on the hook, We don't fool God. You do know that, right? When confronted with God's word, Christian, what do you do with it? But I don't want anyone to think I have a problem, pastor. I don't want anyone to judge me. I don't want anyone to think less of me. Well, Christian, here's the thing. We all have problems. And I know we get ourselves all done up on a Sunday morning. We come to church and I like to tell people that church was like the original social media, right? Church is the original place where you got all dressed up and you took the picture smiling with the food in the background or whatever it is, and everyone's so happy, and then you put the phone down and you're miserable again. But you post it online just how happy you are, and everyone looks and says, oh, why can't I have a life like so-and-so? Look, every picture they take, their life is just they're so happy all the time. You know that, that that's fake, right? You know that they have positioned themselves for that picture, and they took it, and they posted it, and then they got back to living a normal human life, with all of the ups and downs and struggles and everything else. And church was kind of the original that, right? You get all done up on a Sunday and you come and you smile and you laugh and everyone's th- well and nobody sins and nobody has any issues. And, and then we all go home and our lives just go back to falling apart. It shouldn't be that way, right? In Christ, it ought not be that way, but that's the original tendency. We're the, we, we made that up. I don't want anyone to think that I have a problem. Well, you do have problems, Christian. And we all know that we have problems. The real problem is not admitting we have problems. The real problem is pretending we don't. The Christian church is not asked to air their dirty laundry to everyone. That's not why we're here. We're not here to air each other's dirty laundry. The Christian church is not asked for auricular and public confessions. So some 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 churches do our Ours doesn't go that route. We don't really see that biblically. We are called to confess our sins one to another and to pray one for another, to acknowledge to each other our failings for the sake of mutual accountability and assistance. It's one of the integral parts of the Christian church and we ought to be doing that. But we are not in the business of public humiliation or shame or anything of the like. That's not what we do here. That's not what we're called to do. But God forbid that we would lie to God when the Spirit of God confronts us. He already knows what's going on, Christian. You might, you might dress yourself up and present yourself as something that you're not on a Sunday. And, and there are even reasons for, again, for us not to, to, to come in and just woe is me and sackcloth and ashes and everything on a Sunday morning. It's appropriate that we would not bring all of our dirty laundry into the assembly on a Sunday morning. There ought to be a place where we can have individual accountability, help one with another, uh, times where we can share and, and, and encourage and, and, and edify and, 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 and exhort and, and, and such. There, there are times for those things. But what we need never do, because it's useless to do it, but we think we can, and we convince ourselves we can, and it's a natural human reaction to do so, is we think we can do this with God. That when God is dealing with us in our hearts, when there's sin, when there's frustration, when there's difficulty, when there's confusion, when there's sorrow, we think that we can somehow pretend our way out of it with God. And can't. God knows what's going on, Christian. That's actually why he's confronting you, right? God doesn't just blanket confront everyone and then hope that it lands on the people that it matters. No, no, no. No, what God is doing in your heart, God is doing in your heart. He may not be doing it in the heart of your wife or your child or your parent or your pastor. He's doing something else in them. He's doing that in you and he's doing it in you because he's dealing with you because he already knows. Why did Sarah laugh? God didn't just, Roll the dice. I wonder if she's listening. I wonder if she's laughing. And then it just landed. Man, I really, I really nailed that one. Right? We might do that sometimes, but God, God wasn't rolling the dice on that day. He knew exactly where Sarah was. He knew what she heard and he knew how she responded. And that's why he asked, why did Sarah laugh? If God is working on your heart, it's because he knows, Christian. Don't ignore that. Don't explain it away. Don't hide from it. It's fruitless. It's counterproductive. There's no need to play those games with him. If God is dealing with you, deal with Him. So how do you respond, Christian? How do you respond to God? How do you respond to God's presence? Do you lay that table before? How do you respond to God's timing? Are you willing to wait? How do you respond to God's capabilities? Do you actually believe in an invested life sort of belief that there's nothing too hard for God? And how do you respond to God's confrontations? Are you one who has a habit of hiding, denying, lying to the Holy Spirit in that sense, lying to yourself? Or are you willing to allow God to do what he's doing and respond in the humility that we ought to have? And that is the point, the key to all of these responses. If we were to take the golden thread that strings all of these responses together, it would be faith and humility because these are the keys of the Christian life. you wondering how you should ever respond to anyone in a Christian manner? Humility would be the word. Start there and then you can, you can branch off from there. Always, 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 whether it's man or God, always start with humility. And if you find that you are in some measure of proper responsiveness to the Lord today, would you respond to that? Let's today break that cycle of lacking of response and instead respond, respond properly, deal with it. Soften the soil of your heart to be responsive to God's interactions with you because as a loving father, he interacts with us, not for your shame, not for your confusion, not because he doesn't want your best or not because he enjoys seeing you squirm as you wait in his... He is doing these things the way he's doing them, and you have to believe this for your best good. That's why you can respond in humility with confidence because you know that whatever God does, he does it well. Whatever God does, he does it right. May God help us to remember it today. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.